Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance uh, that we have. Lord, um, let it never become old for us that we get to come to the word of God, that your words are written down for us in a book and you call us to speak them and to hear them and to expound them and to understand them. Lord, by this to grow, to be more like your son. Uh, like Anita prayed before, Lord, we ask that in this you would be conforming us to the image of Jesus, that this would be a time uh, that builds us up to go out as people who are more like him uh, and whose lives are more oriented towards him. Make us a people, Lord, who turn away from what we were and turn towards what we are becoming in you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I wonder, is anyone here a part of a club of any variety? like a sports club or like a, I don't know, progress association. That doesn't really count as a club, but I'm, I'm, I'm stretching it here. Uh, John, who, who is? I, I saw at least a hand back here. What, what are you in? Quilting. What a club. Um, sorry? Bowls club, right? Anyone, anyone in the, in the, in the, the polo cross? It is polo cross, isn't it? Club? Like, I, I think... This is the only one I've ever run across in Australia. I don't look for them, but, you know, and we have a polo cross club here in, in Middleton. Isn't that nice? Uh, I, I, get, I get no ending number of injuries in the clinic as a nurse through, through that club. They, they keep that, that clinic running. Um, seriously, you ride around on a horse with a stick and throw the ball and expect not to die. Uh, <laughs> people are crazy. Um, what would you say defines those clubs? Like if you were to pick a couple of characteristics... Uh, let me give you an example. I was in a uh, soccer club. Uh, it's a really loose definition of the term club, but it's the best thing I could come up with from my life, really. Um, I played uh, social E-grade soccer. Now, if you didn't know that soccer goes down to the E-grade, it's because it doesn't usually. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we needed it. This was when I was living in Adelaide. So it was many years ago, and I'm obviously much more of an athlete these days. Uh, I, side note, I went for a run yesterday for the second time in three years, I'm going to put it. Um, and, and, and now I'm limping on my right knee because uh, it turns out neglecting your body and then running isn't the best combination. But, uh, you know, I, if I was to decide what our team in the social soccer league, what, what that was defined by, I would say it would probably be a pretty lax approach to sports. Uh, we, we had some decent players on our team. I was not one of them. Um, 18 months, one goal. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, we were relaxed, I suppose is what you'd say we were. Um, we were defined by enjoying the game. Uh, our teeth, for the this is more of a distraction than anything, but our te team was called Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. Uh, it's named after something from the Muppets. But uh, what about you? What about the quilting club? Like-mindedness. That's a good thing to... You know, what about what about the bowls club? Aside from bowls, is there anything that 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 people have in common there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, wherever people gather, there are some unique distinctives that come out of those things. And the Christian faith is, is no exception. In fact, you'd say it was probably the defining example of that. And, and if we asked, what's the thing that defines the Christian community, what would you say? Like-mindedness, that's true. That's where our unity is. Our unity is in faith, we learn in Ephesians chapter 4. 
but but what do we more? What do we do? What's our bowls? You know, what what do we do that we have in common that we all do? I'm actually asking this. I worship God. Yep, yeah, that's 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 true. Pray. Well, the, the one that I was expecting people to say, and I was going to say yes, that is, but but not yep. Love Jesus and who else? And everyone, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not a trick. <laughs> yeah, love, and 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 we get that in John chapter fourteen so beautifully. Thirteen, fourteen, something like that. Um, that that by this all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another he's talking about there but elsewhere we're called to love the world we're called to love our neighbours and we're even called to love our enemies by Jesus uh, and I think that's the that was the obvious one that leapt to mind to, for, for me but there's another one that's really really fundamental that we don't necessarily always think about and that the church honestly not this church specifically but the church broadly especially in Australia or at least that's where my experience is hasn't done all that well at And that's that the church is to be defined by repentance. Uh, we're meant to be a people filled up and living in repentance and not a crushed down, uh, destroyed repentance, but a free repentance that's freed up by Jesus. But when we left off, we, we're going to come to the, the word now and, and, and look at it because that's what we're going to see here. When we left off at the end of uh, chapter 2 in December, I think, uh, we had just finished going through the the narratives of the birth of John and the birth of Jesus, uh, and then the story of Jesus in the temple, and then we we finished there. And you may remember, in the first week, we talked about the the sense of silent expectation leading up to the New Testament, uh, that sat over that, that whole time, 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New uh, if you weren't here for that, obviously you don't remember that, but hopefully you know Luke well enough, uh, or the Bible well enough. Uh, and then, and then, of course, the silence was broken, wasn't it? Uh, angels appeared, first to Zechariah, then to Mary, and, 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 and gloriously we see that the silence is shattered with a prophetic message that the Chosen One has come and the one who will prepare the way for him has come. We saw them announce, John, a prophet filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, sent to prepare the way of the Lord, and Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah, the King, who will save God's people from their sins. And the boys were born and songs were sung. Jesus went into the temple at age 12 and astounded even the teachers of the law. And then, you know, nothing. Silence between chapter 2 and chapter 3, silence for like 18 years. And before that, that account of the temple, silence for about 12 years. Right. Um, aside from a couple of comments of the boy grew strong and in favour with the Lord, nothing happens that we get to know about. And 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 chapter three is kind of like the second breaking of the silence. Uh, chapter three opens with these with with what you might actually find to be dark historical words. Read them with me. We we read them before. We're in we're in the ESV. Here, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. Well done, by the way, Malcolm. Uh, uh, tetrarch of Abilene. During the, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, 
in the wilderness. Pause there. You might hear that and think, uh, that's not actually all that dark. What are you talking about, John? Uh, historical, sure, but not dark. And, and these are historical words. Um, it's a great example, a prime example of Luke, the historian who we've mentioned already, that he goes to these painful lengths to establish where we are and that this actually happened. These are real historical events. But at the same time, Luke's purposeful in what he says here. He's painting a picture that's something a bit like, not quite like, and if it is like, it's a very unfair example of, a boxing ring. In the red corner, Tiberius Caesar, ruler of the Roman Empire, and Pontius Pilate, who rules locally under him. Corrupt rulers who stand in place, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Herod's the most noteworthy. At the end of this section, we read that Herod locked up John. Eventually, he's going to do a heck of a lot worse than lock him up. Uh, and the high priests, of course. The, the high priest was the, the head of the Jewish religious institution, uh, the man who was supposed to represent the people to God. And it's, it's interesting there that he actually mentions Annas and Caiaphas. Because, because if, if you know your Old Testament a little bit, you'll know there was only one high priest at a time. Uh, two high priests wasn't the done thing. And it's almost like uh, Luke is trying to point out how, how much of a corrupted system the high priesthood has become by this point. Because, because Annas, to give you a little explanation, Annas is a father. He has a few sons. His sons become the high priests after him. And then after that, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, becomes the high priest. Uh, and, and that's not how the high priesthood passed on. And yet, because he's related, he gets in on it. And then in the blue corner, John. John the Baptist. When we last heard from John, he was only a baby, but we found out that until the day of his public appearance, we read this in chapter 1 or 2, uh, till the day of his public appearance to Israel, he was in the wilderness the other gospel authors tell us that he wore camel hair clothing. It's not the peak of fashion from what we know historically. He ate locusts and honey. Coming out of the desert is John, wearing camel hair, eating locusts and honey, as we read in Matthew, desperately requiring a toothbrush and a shower. John the Baptist in the blue corner. So as far as the world around is concerned, John is probably not a big deal. He's probably a bit of a nobody, really. But, but what's really noteworthy and, and really off-putting about John is his message. Uh, makes the camel hair look like nothing. He calls people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but repentance, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance meaning turning away from your sin and turning to God instead. It's the same message that the prophets had all been speaking, and John is the final of the prophets of the Old Testament in a way, even though he appears in the New Testament. Uh, they have all been preaching this message of repentance. You know, Jeremiah alone speaks of repentance about a hundred times in, in not that many chapters. Uh, essentially his message was that you stand under judgment for your sin and you are in need of saving. And, and that presented a, an offensive problem for the Jews, didn't it? Many of them didn't think of themselves as needing saving. It wouldn't have been the popular opinion 
for the Jews at the time, that they thought that their descent from Abraham was enough to get them into God's community and into his favor. But John says, no, that's not enough. You are condemned by your sin and you need salvation. You need to enter in. In fact, even though you are descended from Abraham, Abraham, you are on the outside of God's community and need to enter in. And to nail it in, John calls them to be baptized as a sign of that repentance. Uh, now, we, we're familiar with the idea of baptism these days, um, but, but, but in that time, washing in a natural water source like this had a symbolism already. It was a ritual that used was for, for someone who wasn't a Jew to enter the Jewish community. It was if you wanted to become a proselyte Jew, so to speak. And so this sign essentially reinforces you speaking to the Jews are on the outside and you need to enter in. And astoundingly, crowds actually listened to John. We read that the crowds were coming out to him. We don't get a specific number. We could imagine the thousands. And I think that's probably fair. Against the odds, imagine this, droves of people came out to the, to the Jordan, to the edge of the wilderness, and, and were baptized by John. And, you know, the call of John to repent and to be baptized is still the call of the church today and to us today. Repentance was required to enter into the people of God, and it still is. If you uh, are not someone who has repented of your sins and turned to God, in, in Jesus' name, that can change today. It doesn't have to remain that way. Uh, we're going to talk about that even more later on. Uh, and just as a little aside, I wanted to say um, baptism uh, we're not going to make it the big old focus here, but baptism is still the sign of entry into the community of believers. We embrace that as a people here. Uh, maybe you have believed in Jesus. Maybe you have repented of your sins, but maybe you haven't taken part in the sign uh, as a believing part of the community. I remember my baptism. Uh, it was back in Alice Springs. I was ooh, 22, that three, four that day, I think. Yeah, it was on the 11th of March anyway. It was on my birthday. Uh, so I remember the day, but not the year. And considering I don't remember many people's birthdays, even in my immediate family, that's pretty good. Um, but uh, it, it didn't save me, that baptism. But it was such a blessing to rejoice in my salvation through baptism. Uh, and, and then um, it's this way that John gives us. And then later Jesus gives us to be a part of the community, to express our salvation, to declare our salvation through dipping down into the water as a symbol of being washed of our sin and rising back up in life in Jesus. As a symbol, I emphasise that. So I just wanted to just repeat that invitation. Anyone, especially anyone who's a part of this church who has turned from sin and believed in Jesus, come be baptised in, in reflection of your sins having been forgiven and of your freedom in your life in Jesus. So now, though, John, sorry, Luke goes on and he describes what happens next. And John's message doesn't get any friendlier from here on in. We're going from verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. I love it. John is such a salesman, isn't he? Uh, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able even from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Some of the other gospel authors note that John uh, specifically calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees these vipers. Luke chooses to leave that fact out. He doesn't change history. He just doesn't include that particular fact. And, and I think he leaves out who he's specifically talk, talking to, probably because his purpose is to make it clear. The wrath is for everyone who doesn't turn from sin, who doesn't repent. And seriously, here's the, here's the ominous side of John the Baptist, right? More clearly, he wants to make it painfully clear how high the stakes are. God's judgment waits for us all. Children of Abraham physically or not, uh, the axe is at the base of the tree. And so he calls them bare fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, we, we, we can just skip over those words, but we won't. Uh, because, because let me ask you, is he saying, do it now just once, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and then you're all good? Or is he saying, keep doing this, do this as your lifestyle? I think it's obvious, isn't it? He's set, calling for an ongoing bearing of fruit in keeping with repentance. He's called them to repent, and now he's saying, live in a way that reflects repentance. What that means is that repentance isn't a one-off for us Christians. What that means is that repentance, it's not just the gateway into the community of believers. Repentance is the mark of the lifestyle of a true believer, one of the marks. And that speaks to us, doesn't it? Uh, if you're a Christian here, that speaks to you. You're not called to repent of sin as a one-off and then continue your life having dealt with it now. That's not how it looks. Now, you are to go on killing sin in your life, all of the days of your life, until the day when Jesus comes back and sin is killed completely. And a person who's turning from sin will bear fruit of that action every day. Let me say, I think one massive fruit of repentance before we go on, and John's going to give us some specifics, but one of the massive ones of having repented before God is that we're free to repent before each other. We talked about this a little last week, uh, but I want to broaden out the concept now. We were talking about reconciliation in Australia then. We are called to be a people who are free to repent toward others because God has dealt with our sin. Husbands and wives, we've got a few of them here today. Your marriages aren't to be marked by, say, proudly defending your position in an argument. Um, I mean, husbands and wives, raise your hand if you've argued. You liars, stop lying. No, you're not meant to be. It's us, Jackie. Behold. The honest church? <laughs> the remainder. <laughs> sorry if that is offensive to you. Ah, not that, sorry. Um, no, you're, you're meant to be seeking out sin. This is what marriage is kind of for, actually, is to refine us and become make us more like Jesus. Um, it's, it's, it's an experience of... Well, do we practice repenting toward our spouse? 
Let me ask you that. Because that's something you're called to. You know? If you're a Christian, that's something you're called to. Same goes for parenting, right? And, and, and I know that this one specifically, mostly in the, you know, kids who are still at home phase speaks basically to me and Crystal here. But we all know parents, right? Um, parents are to repent toward their children when we sin against them. If you think that you're the perfect parent and it's all wrong with your kids, well, there's something to start with to repent of. We do sin. We get grumpy, you know, confession time here. I get grumpy as a parent. I get edgy with them. I provoke my children to anger, which is specifically uh, called against in the Bible. And it is an essential part of raising what we hope to be a young disciple of Jesus, not just a young disciple of me. I don't want my son and my daughter and my son to just grow up to be like me. I want them to grow to be like Jesus. And so it's an essential part of that, that they see me turning away from my sin and me turning towards my saviour and that that actively works out in me repenting towards them when I sin towards them. It's such good timing. Thank you, Owen. Um, <laughs> This goes for every relationship. It goes for our workplaces, right? You're free to repent as a Christian uh, when we do stuff wrong, when we mess up at work. It goes for our extended families. It goes for the shops. It goes for everywhere. There are people who are led to be free to repent. Most of all, in, in the family believers, right? Here with this community, we're free to repent. We are a people who openly are able to turn away from our sin before each other. It's something we're, we're going to seek out, actually, in our gospel communities. Uh, if this is your first time here, gospel community is what we call a home group. It might be a familiar term or a small group or a home fellowship group or a, or a missional community or one of the other bazillion names that have been given for the things. Um, sorry, point of frustration. Uh, <laughs> But we're going to seek this out, that these gospel communities, which we would encourage anyone who's a regular here to be a part of, that they would not just be a dry Bible study group, um, but that they would be a place where we can actively repent of sin towards each other. And so together, follow God and become more like Jesus together. Now, I know that's, isn't it a scary concept, the idea of talking to other people about your sin? Isn't that terrifying? Isn't the prospect of becoming more like Jesus beautiful and worth it? Now, having said that, look at the fruits now that John gives us. He points uh, these people towards these because the fruit of repentance is so diverse. Uh, it, it affects every part of your life. And certainly John would have advised heaps of people. You can imagine the crowds were coming out, right? Heaps of people would have asked, well, how does that look in my life? Uh, how does repentance work out in my life? But, but Luke includes these few examples uh, of how it looks for a reason. Read it with me from, from verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorised to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. 
Now, do you see what connects those things? People giving clothes and food to those in need, tax collectors taking only the money that they're authorised to, uh, which was revolutionary, by the way. It might just sound like, oh, yeah, that's that's how it should be to us in Australia with our heavily policed tax system. But, uh, but tax collectors were notorious for taking too much. They were hated for it, in fact. And but at least they take too much in the way that they're told to these days. Um, soldiers not extorting, but being content with what they're paid. What do these things have in common? All of these things are actions that demonstrate something. They demonstrate I've turned from sin to the God who provides for me. I've trusted that he will provide so I can freely care for those around me and not hoard in towards me. Trusting God produces care for others. Repentance looks like care. Isn't that funny? The love that we talked about at the start is a fruit of repentance. I, w I wonder by that measure how many of us bear the fruit of repentance? How many of us live out an active care for those who are in need? How many are so free in the grace of God that we are willing to give what we have to those who need it. You know, imagine uh, on the flip side what a testament it would be to an unbelieving world, you know, of the gospel of Jesus Christ if, if Christians were freely giving and caring to others because we know that we have received the great gift and because we are not trusting in these things to save us, but we trust in Jesus. Imagine what a testament to the truth and the power of the gospel it would be if as a community we did that, not just as individuals. You know, whilst we've brought up the gospel communities already, that's another one of our goals for those, is that we want them to be a base for people to be living as a countercultural force, blessing others, contrary to the hoarding that our culture does so that the truth of the gospel might be both spoken and displayed. So what we have so far, John comes out of the wilderness and he calls people to live a life of repentance. But, but, but what we didn't really emphasize was the words of that prophecy. We kind of skipped over it uh, in, in verses 4 to 6. Luke quotes Isaiah and he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, John, John's just preparing the way. He called to repentance, which, which is vital and still is, as we covered. Um, he called to bear the fruit of repentance, which is vital and still is, but repentance alone isn't enough. In fact, we can't even live a repentant life if all we've got is the call to repent. It doesn't matter how much. In fact, you know, the whole Old Testament history, by the way, demonstrates that fact because all of the prophets are calling for repentance and where's the time where it consistently lived out and just kept going? Never. There were flashes in the pan. It doesn't matter how much you care for those around you unless the grace of God is secured by a rescuer by this Lord, your sins are not forgiven. 
and it's all meaningless. But John's call for repentance was there to prepare the way for Jesus. The, the imagery we get there of the, the mountains and the hills being made low and the valleys being filled, it's a picture of uh, a road being prepared for a king into a city. Uh, but, in, but instead of just one strip of land, which was how it was done sometimes when a conquering king would come in, it's a picture of the whole countryside leveled off for the coming of the king, everything ready for his arrival. And the, the way that John prepares us, it's not actual hills, it's not actual valleys he's talking about. It's the saving king Jesus is coming, so he calls people to repent of sin and to turn to God because here he comes. And so when the people begin to question whether John might be the Christ, whether he might be the way of salvation, I'm going to give that two seconds, maybe five. When the people start questioning, is John the Christ? Uh, there in verse 15, John answers with these incredible words, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says, there's someone greater than me on his way, imminently. In fact, so much greater than John that John doesn't consider himself worthy to uh, unstrap his sandals. In Jewish culture, that's the low of the low. It was one of those jobs that a Jewish slave typically wouldn't do. Okay. Uh, you'd get one who wasn't Jewish to do it because it was so abominable. And you can imagine just aesthetically and, and, and hygienically walking streets that are covered in animal poo in those days, how that would have worked out, right? You've farmer boots, right? Picture that, but without the boot, sandal. <laughs> um, this person that's coming is Jesus, the one who is so much greater than John. And John tells us what Jesus does that is greater than the ministry of John. John baptized with water. It's a sign of repentance, entering into the community, but just a sign, not something that actually changes a person. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In fact, as the gospel goes on, we'll find that Jesus, God himself, will die under the punishment of our sin. And he will rise to new life that he offers to believers. So opening the way for the Holy Spirit to come into us and live in us, for us to be baptised, dipped down into the Spirit and filled on up with him. The same Spirit that had filled John from birth is now given to every believer. You know, John, think about who John was, right? He's the blue corner, and yet he's the guy who all of the crowds came out to. A remarkable man and a remarkable ministry because the Spirit of God is working through him. The Spirit is the most incredible gift to every believer. There are no words for the wonder of what God's done, for the wonder of God in us. His work, which, which in total you could summarize as he glorifies Jesus, his work is so huge. The Spirit makes a person a new creation, uh, causes us to be born again. The Spirit dwells in believers. He seals us for the day when Jesus comes back as an assurance of the fact that we have our inheritance. He teaches us the truth about Jesus. Who's the primary teacher of the church? Taint me. 
It's the Spirit. He empowers us to speak the truth and show it to others, and so much more than even that. In fact, I want to emphasize that that last one, right, of showing, because at the beginning of this message, we talked about how Luke uh, opens it like a boxing match, right, with every imaginable earthly power in the red corner and John in the other, and we talked about how it was against the odds, but it wasn't really because he had the spirit. The truth is it would have been against the odds, but John had the spirit of God within him. And so the greater power was on his side of the ring. Isn't it amazing that by the end, uh, we see it emphasized, every believer is indwelt with the spirit. Did you know that, believer? That the, the spirit of God, the power of God in a person lives in you. Same spirit that worked with such power through John the Baptist works through you. The greatest power in the world resides in you. You know, atom bomb, nothing compared to the spirit of God. You know, perhaps you have neighbours and friends. Let's, let's give this legs a bit, shall we? Perhaps you have neighbours and friends who you would put outside of the reach of God. You would say, you know, they're never going to be reached. They're never going to believe. You you wouldn't have thought it was possible. Hear this, the same spirit that brought the crowds to John. To to the message of repent, you vipers, (laughs) dwells in you. Same message, you know, you guys aren't even wearing camel hair or smelling bad. Bonus, right? He lives in you to bring others to faith. Now, now, you know, we find out here in the the final two verses of our our passage today that Herod locked John up. And, you know, um, it may look like the red corner just won, right? You know, add to that fact, Herod will eventually behead John. And it really looks here like Herod has won, doesn't it? But think about that from an eternal perspective. John will stand secure in the grace of Jesus for all of eternity, in perfect joy. And all of the people who believed on account of his ministry will stand there right with him. Can you imagine a greater joy? They'll be with their king, who they were made to rejoice in. And the same spirit that leads John in that ministry leads him uh, to that. Sorry, I lost my sentence there. The same spirit that led John leads you, believers. Let me just change gear a little and say something else. John ends his message with these sobering words. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, that the chaff he will burn, chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know, perhaps you're someone who has not repented. They would never assume that that doesn't exist here at Gospel Church. Perhaps you're someone who hasn't turned from sin 
and to God and you haven't received the spirit and you haven't received this power and you haven't seen the salvation of God that is in Jesus. The same warning and the same promise that John spoke stand today. Jesus is not just the saviour, he will return as judge of the living and the dead. Those who believe he will carry to joy. Those who do not stand under the judgment for sin, that is theirs. And those words, unquenchable fire, I think they capture it pretty well. Pretty succinct description of what's going to happen. Perhaps you have just coasted uh, into church today, or perhaps you have just been coasting in church for a long time and you haven't believed the message, you haven't received the spirit. Perhaps you haven't taken it seriously. He is coming back to judge. Be ready. Believe and be saved and the spirit of God will be in you. Why don't I pray for us? And then we're going to share in time with me. Jesus, thank you that you give us power for repentance. Uh, we couldn't have lived in that way, Lord, and we confess uh, even now that we haven't. That we haven't practiced the daily turning from sin that your word calls us to. We haven't practiced the daily turning towards you that would bring us joy. Um, Lord, we, we ask that you would lead us as a people of repentance. Not by any power in us, Lord, but by the power of your spirit. Or not by our power in us, but by your power in us. You make us a people who honour the name of Jesus by showing that we we don't need the sin, we don't need this world, and, and we don't need to be justified in the eyes of others because, Lord, our justification is in you. And so we can repent. Help us to bear the fruit, Lord, the fruit of a people who know that we have been provided for, that our God is greater than the world, the fruit of a people who can care for others, who can humbly care and love others. By your blood, Jesus, by the power of your spirit in us, make us so, transform us. And Lord, I specifically just want to pray when we start meeting in our gospel communities that you would not allow that to be a dry time or an empty time, but that you would lead us as a people who love you so much that we love to turn from sin and to turn to you and to become more like Jesus. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.